Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Dr. Matthew Kronig and Mr. Dan Negrea of the Atlantic Council. Dr. Kronig is the Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and the Director of the Scowcroft Strategy Initiative. And Mr. Negrea is the Senior Director of the Atlantic Council's Freedom and Prosperity Center. Today, we're discussing their really interesting report entitled, Do Countries Need Freedom to Achieve Prosperity? This is, I think, a critical question for our time. This is a great topic. I'm so glad that Dr. Kronig and Mr. Negrea, I'm going to call them Matt and Dan for this podcast because I both know them both. This is a great topic. And I was so happy to see the Atlantic Council and Matt and Dan take leadership on this really important question. You know, we're gonna, it looks at the relationship between a nation's level of freedom and prosperity. It's fascinating, and it touches on some critical issues. So thanks, Matt. Thanks, Dan, for being here. Welcome to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Thanks, Dan. It's really, really a pleasure to be here. We're excited about this report and really want to talk to your listeners about it. I'm a a loyal and and frequent listener to to Dan's podcast and uh, love the idea behind the podcast and the speakers. Thanks, Dan. Thanks a lot. I'm grateful. So first, let's do a plug for the initiative at the Atlantic Council's Freedom and Prosperity Center. What is the Atlantic Council's Freedom and Prosperity Center? Well, it's a new center. It's the newest center of the Atlantic Council, the 16th to be precise. And we've been in business for, oh, well over a week. I've been working, though, at the Atlantic Council for a year under the direction of Matt Kronick when the initiative was part of the Scowcroft Center. The Freedom and Prosperity Center is um, doing basically two things. It's doing analysis and it's doing advocacy on this important question of the relationship between freedom and prosperity. The idea is the brainchild of a friend of mine who has been uh, thinking since his college days, he's a grown man these days, about this issue. And we've uh, spent a year building the indexes, which are the key element of our analysis of our work. But we have plans to also implement these ideas. So we don't want to be just a debating society We want to see the principles that uh, animate us and the conclusions of our work implemented in developing countries. The focus of our work is developing countries. Why did you write this report, Do Countries Need Freedom to Achieve Prosperity? I love it, but what prompted you to write it? Well, maybe I'll take um, this one. And, uh, you know, after the end of the Cold War, there was essentially a consensus that the only legitimate way to organize domestic politics, uh, your economy, is open market democracy. We've seen America's open market democracy provide prosperity in the United States and the rest of the free world. But it's essentially been a bad 15 years uh, for open market democracy. We had the, the global financial crisis led many people to call into question, does this still work? Freedom House is reporting that the number of democracies around the world has declined in each of the past 15 years. 
China is championing this uh, state-led authoritarian capitalist model as a superior model. Uh, many dictators around the world are, are looking to China a as the model. And even in the West, I think we've lost confidence in, in our own system with our polarization and you know, populism and other issues. And, and I think some in the West are even saying, I don't know, maybe China does have the better model. And Dan and I were very skeptical of that. We think, you know, Winston Churchill, that um, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And, and so we wanted to examine, you know, does open market democracy still work? If I may jump in here, we have a freedom and prosperity project, and we have two separate indexes, a freedom index and a prosperity index. But when we talk about freedom, we talk about three things, economic freedom, political freedom, and legal freedom. We felt it was important to think comprehensively about freedom. When Matt talked about the democracy recession that we've had recently, he was referring to political freedom. In our index, looking at the period between 2006 and 2021, we see an increase in our, quote, freedom index. But if you look at the sub-indexes that we have, we see a lot of increase in economic freedom, basically flat on legal freedom, but we see a decrease in political freedom comparable to the decrease that we see in the Freedom House Index on political freedom. That's a really interesting insight. Were there other sort of surprises you all took from the exercise that you just conducted? We have basically three takeaways. That there is very, very strong correlation of 0.81. There's 0.81, if you have a free society, you're highly likely to have a prosperous society. Right. Where can I get the report online? Very simple, Atlantic Council Freedom and Prosperity Index. And the Google is a wonderful thing and you go there. We define freedom, as, as I was saying, as economic, political, and legal. But then on prosperity, we also go beyond income. A lot of people, when they think about prosperity, they think about wealth, money. We look at GNI, but we lo also look at the environment. We look at health. We look at the treatment of minorities. And we look at happiness. We have it in the Declaration of Independence, right? Right to happiness. So the surprise was how strong the correlation is. And then we get to the other two takeaways, which are, that's the correlation, what's the causality? And then the key question, do autocracies deliver? And that's something that Matt alluded to. Matt, you know, I have read your book. I bought it retail uh, and loved it. The Return of Great Power Rivalry, your book, The Return of Great Power Rivalry by uh, Professor Matthew Kronig. And I think, Matt, this issue is part of great power rivalry. I think you alluded to it in your earlier remarks. I think we are in a competition on models of development. I don't think the aid community necessarily would want to frame it that way, but that's how I would think about it. And I think they're going around saying, hey, you don't need this democracy stuff and this pesky human rights stuff. Look how great we are. You ought to just emulate us. And it's tempting in some part, other parts, lots of parts of the world, there's some temptation. Do you agree with that you were saying earlier? There's a competition of development models out there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a competition of development models. 25 years ago, we were the only game in town. Now, now there's uh, an alternative. Uh, and for many dictators or would-be dictators, the, this China model is, is more appealing. They can say, I, I get to maintain political control 
and I can still deliver prosperity for our people. And I think what we're showing in this index and in this report is that's not true. State-led capitalism doesn't work. It doesn't even work in China. One of the things we do in the report is look at different um, Chinese societies with different development models and ask which one does better. We compare Hong Kong, Taiwan, and uh, mainland China. Mainland China has lifted people out of prosperity. I don't want to discount that, but they're still a middle-income country. They've hit a ceiling. They, they may even be in economic decline uh, right now, if not stag- you know, certainly stagnation, maybe decline. As a GMP per capita, sorry, Matt, it's higher in Taiwan than the mainland. It's higher in Hong Kong than the mainland. Much higher. You know, they've broken out of the mid-income trap, middle-income trap. They're high-income countries. Uh, and in the report, we show a number of natural experiments like this, compare North Korea and South Korea, East and West Germany, the countries of the former Soviet Union, those that adopted freedom versus those that did not, almost without exception that countries uh, with the three freedoms um, excel, uh, become richer, and and those without them uh, do not. Look, this is very congenial to my worldview. Uh, As soon as I saw the title of this, I was like, I have to have you guys on. I have to have, this is great this speaks to sort of the core of what I'm about and like why I'm in the biz. So this really spoke to me. But what is the message for the listeners? Should we be, is the message that the West should continue to push for both economic freedom and political freedom? Isn't that the bumper sticker you want people to come by? Like it is correlated and we should continue to push for it? Yeah, I would say that the purpose of our work, let's leave the message aside for the moment, the purpose of our work is to help decision makers in developing countries look at facts. What we wanted to accomplish with with our analysis was to say, look, freedom tends to lead to prosperity. We are not We don't claim to have ended the conversation that has been going on literally since Adam Smith's time about the relations between the two. But we are bringing strong arguments that yes, freedom leads to prosperity. And we want to give decision makers in developing countries, we want to give them the facts, we want to give them indicators. We are measuring 28 different indicators that we take from 15 sources. These are sort of the levers that they can push and pull. They are the things that they can move up and down to get to prosperity. And we let them reach the decision. The other thing is we are not trying to take a country that has a very low GDP per capita and take it to the level of Finland. We want to see an improvement within their category. Well, well, just to add to that, I think the primary audience, as Dan mentions for our work, is the developing world themselves. You know, if they want prosperity, don't choose the path of Chavez, Maduro, uh, you know, the Castro regime. That doesn't work. Uh, choose freedom if, if you want a better life for yourself and your kids. But I think also the, the secondary uh, audience is the West. You know, so for development agencies, we, we should be, uh, those interested in development should be pushing for uh, economic and political freedom uh, if they really want to see development. Uh, and then I think also, you know, as we think about our own model and this competition to help us regain a little bit of our confidence. We've been in like midlife crisis for 15 years on this topic. And I think ever since the 2008 financial crisis, we've been a little bit on the back foot So I think this is a very welcome study. You know, I think China and Russia fill vacuums that we leave behind. They fill vaccine vacuums, trade vacuums, security vacuums, digital vacuums. They fill values vacuums. And they also fill vacuums of ideas. And I think in the war of ideas, 
we've been a little bit kind of withdrawn a little bit because we've been, you know, we've had a little bit of kind of a crisis of confidence. So then just to support what you just said, to agree with what Matt was saying, after 70 years of communism, China is 140 out of 176 countries in freedom and 114 in prosperity. Russia are 114 and 88 respectively. It doesn't work. The other thing that is very interesting, we are showing the in a continent that is dear to your heart, Venezuela. It's the country that has lost the most freedom of all the countries that we've looked at. The loss of freedom correlates with the drop in GNI, we mentioned rather than GDP, of two thirds, which is comparable to the loss in Syria. So the argument that we are making is very bad political leadership can devastate prosperity as much as a civil war. Oh my goodness, I totally believe it. I mean, they've exported something like 6 million people have left Venezuela. Because we don't get a lot of Venezuelans here in the US, it doesn't get the same kind of media attention as other, I think, I believe the Venezuelan exodus of people is the largest at the moment. I believe it's larger than the Syrian one at this point. I could be wrong, Dan, but if it ain't bigger, it's on the same par as the Syrian crisis. Venezuela gets very limited attention, and I think I think it's really shocking the amount of value destruction that's happened because of terrible governance. And in twenty year period, it only took twenty years to drive that country into the ground. It's terrible. Yeah, and in our work, we we have data for twenty one, sixteen, eleven, and oh six. So we are looking at countries over this 15-year span with comparable data from the same sources. Okay, so let me just go through some examples. Chino, Chile under Pinochet, authoritarian city-states like Singapore that happen to be our friends or states in other parts of the world in the Middle East that are small that happen to be our allies so we don't push too much on this. Is there a ceiling at what they can achieve with their political system? And wh- you know, how, how should we think about those examples? Well, I can um, uh, jump in here first and then let uh, Dan go. So, so we are measuring more than just um, political freedom. We're measuring economic and legal freedom as well. And so you do have some non-democracies who score well overall on freedom because they have so much economic freedom. So, so Singapore and UAE, for example, do do pretty well in our indices, both in terms of uh, freedom and prosperity. As we point out in the report, though, uh, you know, those are the exceptions, not the rule. And the challenge there is, you know, generally political and economic freedom go hand in hand. Uh, You know, you need political leaders who keep those economic policies in in place. But there's always the temptation for uh, an autocratic country that wants to maintain political control to also try to take control over the economy, limit those freedoms. And so, yeah, we do have, you know, Singapore, UAE as exceptions for now, but maintaining economic freedom and prosperity without political freedom is very difficult. And just, you know, these are also small countries, you know, no real evidence that this can work in larger countries. Dan, do you want to add anything there? Yeah, I had an interesting conversation. Matt and I presented the indexes at the Copenhagen Democracy Summit, uh, Fogg Rasmussen's um, event. And I had an interesting conversation with a member of the Parliament of India. He said he looked at the report and he, he said he loved the conclusion. And he said, yes, we are behind China in terms of economic development. 
but we love our freedom and I will not trade a few points of GDP growth or a few billion in GDP absolute numbers for our freedom. And then he added something very interesting. We didn't have a Mao who would have economic policies that will result in tens of millions of people dying of starvation. So yes, they have some growth now, but they also had authoritarians that caused tremendous devastation. So I think it's an interesting perspective also, um, and it jives with the message of our report. Okay, so Dan, can I get a little personal? So you grew up in Romania, and you defected from a terrible dictatorship and came and lived the American dream. Could I ask you just to talk about, for folks who live in a free society, What's it like to be in an unfree society and how does that impact the choices somebody makes in terms of the kinds of career choices and this? And then if you aggregate all of that, that turns into like, you know, a lot less like a limited opportunity across a society. You know, this is a topic close to your heart. This report was for me also a way to try to put in numbers and in facts something that I know viscerally which is that dictatorships can do a very good job focusing the resources of a nation to solve immediate problems, generate tremendous economic growth that may appear for a while to be progress, and actually in a way is progress, like China raising hundreds of millions out of poverty or the Soviet Union at some point and so on and so forth. But then there is a plateau because to reach true prosperity, you need to unleash the freedom of the individual. People need to contribute freely or the society will not progress beyond a certain point. The one thing that was interesting in what what you mentioned here, when you said career choices, there was free education in, in Romania and there was free education in all Soviet bloc countries. That was true. But then the government will tell you where you go and work after you graduate. Uh, As they say, freedom is not free. At the same time, what appears to be free in a dictatorship, there is a cost to it. They'll say, you can go study, but then, you know, we think you'd be a great engineer, Dan. Or we think you actually really ought to be a farmer. And they sort of just tell you, right? The most egregious example were, were medical students. Medical education was free. The medical school was pretty good. But then they will send them into villages. So these were very intelligent, very sophisticated people. And they say, congratulations, the next five years, you have to live in this remote village. So let me push a little bit further on. I don't know if you've seen this book. I think this is the most sophisticated anti of this. So I'm with you guys, right? So let's just be clear, okay? But there's a book called Beating the Odds by Justin Lin and Celestin Manga, which basically says... You know what? It says it in Fino, smart, technocratic, seductive, economic, think tanky terms, right? I'm in the biz, right? We're all in the biz here. We know how to do this. And it's a very compelling, seductive argument that says, ah, you ought to follow the China model of the 80s. And so this, you have a senior respected African technocrat And Justin Lin, who instead of defecting to freedom, and no one likes to talk about this because he's a very respected development economist, defected from Taiwan and swam to communist China, basically saying this is a better system. 
What's your all's response to that? At first, have you heard of the book? But it seems to me this is the most sophisticated, pheno, anti-argument to what you all have just done. Have you heard of the book? And then what's your response to when somebody starts kind of whispering the seductive argument in policymakers' ears? How do we push back against that? Well, I haven't seen the book, but I'll, I'll look forward to reading it. And, and I'll take that book and counter with uh, one of my favorite books, which is Why Nations Fail by Darren Achimoglu and James Robinson. They essentially say to have economic development, you need good, in- good economic institutions. You need institutions that encourage hard work, that protect property rights, encourage innovation. Um, and that in theory, you could have good economic institutions in an autocracy, but that in, in practice, they don't go together because uh, dictators like control. And so they don't like good economic institutions. They like arbitrary economic institutions where they can control society, appropriate property for themselves and, and their cronies. In general, you only get good economic institutions in democracies, and they marshal an enormous amount of evidence, you know, going all the way back to European colonization, looking at other kind of natural experiments, and we, we draw heavily on their work. And, and so for those who make the argument, I would just say, what are the cases? China, I would say, is not a success. Uh, and we're seeing the limits of its model now as she reasserts control over economy and, and, and strangles Chinese growth. You know, Singapore, um, maybe there, there are one or two counterexamples out there, but um, it's, it's almost a, a law of economic development. You need freedom uh, to have prosperity. Dan, what do you think about this? Have you heard about this book and how, how should we respond to arguments like this? As you mentioned, I lived in communist Romania. One of the few joys we had there were jokes. So we took jokes extremely seriously. And when you told me about this gentleman who swam from, I mean, why swim? Because from Taiwan, they have complete freedom. They can fly. But in Romania, lots and lots of people swam across the Danube, walked through Yugoslavia to Trieste to defect from communist Romania to communist Yugoslavia to Trieste, which was a free city to the west. And the joke is that in a police car, there is this guy and he's arrested and they say, well, what did you do? I tried to swim across the Danube to freedom and they're taking me to prison. And they ask the other guy, what did you do? They're taking me to a lunatic asylum. Why? I tried to cross the border from Romania to the Soviet Union. The argument to this gentleman is, communists never worked. As I like to say, if the East Germans couldn't make it work, if the Germans couldn't make it work, nobody can make it work. We show in our analysis how East Germany and West Germany had a difference in GDP per capita of one and a half times at the end of the Second World War. That difference grew to three and a half times by the time Germany was reunified. And the same analysis looking at Taiwan and Hong Kong as we, as we talked about. Not to mention North and South Korea. It just has never worked anywhere. So I don't know that I'll buy the book. If somebody gives it for free, I may look at it. <laughs> okay. So we haven't talked enough, though, about the China miracle. It's, it, we've referenced it a little bit. It's pulled 400 million or 500 million people out of poverty Talk a little bit about what is the China model and why it is attractive and what are the defects to it? Because there's sometimes, I think, too much admiration in this society. Ten years ago, you heard a lot more sort of people kind of talking about it in unvarnished admiration. I think there's a lot less of that now. Talk a little bit about why is the China model not something countries should follow? 
Well, well, first, China has accomplished something. It has lifted uh, millions of people out of poverty. But a couple of caveats to that. One, one, it started as a very poor country. And so going from a very poor country to a middle-income country is a challenge, but not that difficult. What's really difficult is going from a middle-income country to a high-income country. And, and China and the CCP still haven't done that, and, and I think never will. A uh, second point I'd uh, make is that dictatorships can be good at reallocating resources, as Dan mentioned, to achieve uh, short-run growth. And so China has done that. You know, they took millions of poor farmers, uh, moved them to factories, and helped China uh, with its export-led growth model. Uh, and then the Chinese government massed resources behind infrastructure investment, and that led to, to a round of growth. Uh, but the question always is, what is the next act? How is the dictator going to mass resources now? And the, the bet is that they're going to dominate technology of the 21st century, the CCP's um, investing in that. But I don't think that's going to work. Um, the rest of the world doesn't t trust their technology. And, and then the other challenge you always have is, again, that dictators prioritize control over economic efficiency. And we see Xi doing that really backtracks on the Chinese liberalizing reforms that had worked, uh, cracking down on the education uh, sector, cracking down on the Chinese tech sector, uh, prohibiting uh, wealthy Chinese from investing um, overseas. And we see Chinese growth slowing as a result of that. Biden uh, recently said U.S. growth is going to be higher than Chinese growth this year for the first time in, in a long time. Um, and, um, you know, some experts are saying that, you know, China may be in decline now. We've seen the limits of, of the China model. One can hope, Matt. One can hope. I'm certainly hoping for that. I don't wish him well at all. So that's great, to be honest. That's good. There's a really important book that, if you haven't read, is called Invisible China, How the Urban-Rural Divide Threatens China's Rise. If you haven't read it, I think it's related to this issue of you can get to middle-income country status. You're right, Matt and Dan. And then I think it's really hard to break out of it. And generally, you can't sell rocks and agriculture. Like, I'm all for, you know, mining. I'm all for energy, including oil and gas. And I'm all for agriculture. But commodity-based economies can only take you so far in kind of developing. Oftentimes, it's sort of innovation-led economic growth. It's knowledge economies. It's services, innovation. Well, you need a certain level of workforce development. You probably need a certain level of political freedom and ability to kind of move around and to freedom to associate. And, you know, because oftentimes ideas are sort of a collective action issue. Probably need some religious freedom. One of the things we haven't talked about is religious freedom. And I note that. And so I do think, you know, so you can have diverse people from different backgrounds who feel safe you know, participating in society and, and be, you know, we talk about a lot of discussion about bringing your whole self to work. You got to be able to bring your whole religious self to work, too. And so I think in a lot of societies, I think we take for granted in the West that in a lot of places you can't do that. And so I think that's also an issue. But this issue of the book Invisible China relates to demography. So they're betting on the technology because their demography is going the wrong way. And so you either need more people or you need more robots to be simplistic, right? And so they're going to have a lot less people, but they also need people to be trained to a certain level. There was some statistic in the book, and don't hold me to it, but if you read this book, and you should go out and get this book and read it because it's related to this what we're talking about. Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea... What percentage of the workforce of those three countries had a 12th grade education when they broke out of the middle income country trap? And the number is 75% or higher. 
What percentage today of the mainland China workforce has a 12th grade education? 29%. There's like a whole series of things. They're going to miss a whole bunch of opportunities because they don't have the workforce to back up. It's one thing to make socks in a factory. It's another thing to say, well, I'm going to make a microchip, right? And so you need another level of capacity and training. Now, Taiwan has it. Japan has it. You start seeing this in countries like Malaysia, a Muslim country. There's an attempt at a democratic breakout, if you will, right? There's been some, you know, emerging democracy. I don't know how you want to characterize it, but something like that. So this is really interesting. When people say, which exactly the China model? The Mao China, the first 30 years that left China, desperately poor country where tens of millions died of starvation because of aberrant behavior by the leader who caused terrible uh, decisions. The 30 years of Deng Xiaoping reform that, that introduced capitalism into the, that system and a limited degree of political freedom, or the China model of Xi Jinping of the last 10 years that seems to be taking China back to the Mao days and where there was a 10% growth of GDP in the days of Deng Xiaoping. Now we have 5%, 4%, some people are projecting less than 4%. So which exactly of these, or put differently, the China model allows all these to exist and has the potential to create the problems. Talking about minority rights, uh, Dan, and I know it's a topic close to your heart, we measure minority rights with religious freedom. And when we define what a prosperous society is, one of five indicators is minority rights measured through religious freedom. And China is 167 out of 174 because they take people and put minority Uyghurs and put them in concentration camps. So what kind of society do you want to have at the end? And look what is possible in the Chinese model. So let me give you guys a chance to plug again where you can go get the study. I think this is an important study. I want people to go out and read it. I'm going to post it on my LinkedIn when the podcast happens. I'll post the podcast and I'll post the study. Glad we were able, the three of us, to do this. So, Dan, where can I get the study? Atlantic Council Freedom and Prosperity Center and Freedom and Prosperity Index. And it's available. And it, we even have a website with interactive features. You can put two countries to see which one grew more on one aspect or another. Because I'm in the think tank business if you guys are not going to make like a three to five minute video. We have a six minute video. Okay, even better, even better. So so if I go to the website, I can see your six minute video. Yeah, and thankfully you don't see me. But I'll just say we have done videos where we get like, I'm not going to say it always happens, but we've had like a personal best of 200,000 downloads. So I think this topic is the kind of thing that could have global interest. And so in addition to this important report, I'm so pleased you're going to have the highlights in the form of a video that the Atlanta Council is posting. That's very good news. And let me add one more thing. Dan, you are not listed at the end in acknowledgments. But as you know, you and I have discussed my work over the past year. You've been very generous with your time over breakfasts and lunches. And you've given me valuable insights and guidance. So thank you very much. And I admire your work at CSIS. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate I think this is really a great study and an important contribution. Thanks for doing it. I'm really happy to see this come about. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, Dan.
Congrats, Matt. This is great. I mean, I just think this is really encouraging. I do think this is part of the great power competition you talk about in your important book, that we've got to compete in the war of ideas. And this is a really important contribution you all have done at the Atlantic Council. Oh, thanks, Dan. Yeah, our primary uh, objective is to help the poor and marginalized in the developing world. But I think a secondary objective is to make sure that uh, we win this uh, competition against um, communist China. I think we now need to collectively get to a bipartisan consensus about what the heck do we do about it. And I think this study is a good reminder that we ought to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and not be afraid to speak both on terms of various forms of freedom. Ultimately, if you want to be break out of the middle-income country trap, which is a thing in international development, you need to have political freedom and legal freedom and economic freedom. It's not just one. You got to have more than that. Very well said. I, I agree completely. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 